Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. Today we have a good one. We're talking with Tom Wallace, who's the managing partner of Florida Funders. Florida Funders is a venture capital group out in Florida. They invest in deals in Florida as well as the Southeast region. Over 40 companies in the portfolio, another 40 that they manage on behalf of the state of Florida. Great experiences shared around um, vetting early stage companies, investing in early stage companies. Tom shares a lot of his background as a founder himself, growing some companies. Spent a lot of time talking about those things. We also talk about angel investing for the first time, things to think about. Super fun conversation, packed with a lot of information. Hope you enjoy it. Find Tom online. Thank him for being on the show, and thank you so much for listening. With that, also want to do a quick shout out to Fuel Merchandise Group. Fuel is uh, one of our newer sponsors here to the podcast. You can find them at fuelmerchandise.com. If you need any brand marketing or products for your company, you can get 10% off your first order. Just mention startup competitors at fuelmerchandise.com. And with that, we'll just get right on to the show. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're chatting with Tom Wallace, who's the managing partner of Florida Funders. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with a quick pitch or overview of Florida Funders? What do you and the team do? So we find, fund, and build the next generation of great technology companies here in the state of Florida. Uh, We do invest in the Southeast as well, but we're primarily focused on Florida. And we're a combination between a venture capital fund and a crowd network of angel investors of about 1,500, about 1,500 angel investors. And we invest in early stage tech companies. And uh, we're scouring the state all the time looking for the next unicorn. Hit me with some quick vanity metrics. How, so you, you, get, you said the 15,000 angel investors. How, like how many startups have you guys funded to date? Uh, how much capital, anything you can share that would um, provide some of that? I'm happy to do it. We've been at this about four years, Mike. Our first one fund was an $18 million fund, which we've just about fully deployed. We're about to start on our second fund, or we start on our second fund. We've invested roughly $40 million over these four years. That will um, accelerate in the years to come. We have over 40 companies in our portfolio of companies we've invested in. I think we're closer to 50 now. And then we manage another 40 companies, uh, portfolio of 40 companies for the state of Florida because they used to be in the venture capital business, got out. And uh, so we manage those 40 companies for them as well. And we have 1,500 investors. And our investors are accredited investors. So these are people with a net worth of over a million, million dollars. And, and um, you probably know a little bit about the accredited investor status. And um, we have 12 full-time people on our team. And we're based in Tampa, Florida, but we uh, we we have a presence in Miami, South Florida, as well as Orlando and across the state. But we have uh, most of our team located here in Tampa. Awesome, perfect. And sorry about the the typo on my part with the fifteen thousand versus fifteen hundred. I was going to ask you how the heck you found fifteen thousand investors. So, yeah, but fifteen hundred fifteen hundred is still very impressive. Well, if you think about the state of Florida, we have the third largest number of accredited investors only behind California and New York. 
And uh, we have, you can Google it, roughly three, 400,000 credited investors. So we've got a big pool to work on. But unlike California and to a certain extent, New York, most of our investors in Florida, our credit investors, didn't make their wealth in technology. So they're not as prone to being angel investors. So we do a lot of what we do is educating people on why to become an angel investor, how to do it right, uh, what this asset class is all about, how much of your asset allocation should go into angel investing. And our, our part of our goal here is to wake up this sleeping giant of all these accredited investors so that we have a lot more early stage capital being invested in technology here in this here in Florida. Well, thank you for your service. We need we need that, I think, in a lot of different states, not just Florida. Uh, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess a couple of different ways we could take this. Let's start with the startups and then I want to circle back to the to the investors and kind of how do you educate them, but maybe walk me through if I'm a startup and and I would like to you know work with Florida funders from an investment perspective. Talk me through that process. What does that look like? Yeah, just go out to our our website, floridafunders.com, and we have a very simple application process. Take you about 10, 15 minutes, and that'll really get the process started. It is a process. It takes a while. Um, there are different you know, stages of it. And, you know, people get dropped off as we go along, depending, you know, we're just trying to find a good fit. We're trying to find a, a company that is is what we're looking for. And we tend to invest in, in what me and my partners know. We have backgrounds in software, SaaS software, cybersecurity, ed tech, digital health, um, fintech. That's what we, that's kind of our focus. So we'll have people go on and apply in like bio life sciences. That's, that's not really what we do. So some people get cut, you know, get cut out of the process pretty quickly or, or they self, they, they, they read what we're looking for and, and realize they're not a good fit. And then others make it through our whole process, which takes um, from beginning to end, you know, roughly 30 to 60 days. And, and then they, if they get all the way through, then they make it to our, our final investment committee, which they, the founders then pitch us our investment committee of about eight people and they pitch us and then we make the final decision. Are we going to fund them or not? Our average check size is right about a million dollars. So that's what we put in each company, roughly half of that coming from our fund and half of it coming from our angel network of investors. And that match from the angel network, is that pre-committed dollars or is that they're, they're looking deal by deal and making the choice if they want to fund? It's a little bit of both. Um, I know I'm kind of, that sounds a little nebulous, but we have a program called Portfolio Select where an investor can put up a certain amount of money. So they say they put up $100,000 and then they invest, they would choose a, to invest $10,000 in our next 10 deals, as an example, or $5,000 in our next 20 deals. And, or they can just, you know, look at each deal individually, invest it as, as they, they like. My partners and I invest alongside of our, our, um, angel network. So we're investors both in our fund. And I personally do um, nearly every company and, and as do my partners. So one of the things that we educate our angel investors on is is very important in angel investing, as in most investing, to diversify. Mike, if you said, you know, hey, I want to become an angel investor, I've never done this before. You know, the first thing we're going to do is say, look, you you don't want to come in and do one or two deals. You want to do uh, a ten, 10. You need to build a portfolio of 10 investments because this is a high risk, high reward business. So if you, let's just say you invest in 10 companies. Uh, our rule of thumb is probably a third to a half of those are going to go bust. We use a third are going to go to zero. A third, you're going to get your money back or some percentage of your money back or a very small return. And you're going to make all your returns on the top third. And typically, you're going to make all your returns 
uh, using the example of 10 on one or two investments. The, those that hit will hit big. They, they could be a 20x, a 30x, a 40x return. So that's, that's the game we play. And if you only come in and do two or three deals, you know, the odds are against you. You know, we tell people if you're going to do that, you might as well just go to the casino. You might get lucky, but, you know, the chances are against it. But this asset class of angel investing in early stage tech, if you compare it to all the other asset classes, whether it be public stocks, bonds, real estate, venture capital, private equity, it outperforms every other asset class if you do it right. And that's, that's, you can Google that too. That's fairly well documented. And the Angel Capital Association of America has a lot of stats on that. If you want to go visit, visit their website. Oh man, I want to switch to founders. Uh, okay. Or, or sorry. Uh, I mean, investors, Let, let's just, let's keep going down that thread since we're there. So when you're, you've got a first time angel investor, walk me through that process of getting them comfortable, not, not just with the portfolio math and, and kind of how that works, but, but even like, you know, how long is this money going to be tied up? What are the tax implications? Like what, what's the process that you guys walk them through to get them comfortable with the choice to invest? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So this is not a liquid investment. You're going to, let's, if you pick, choose to invest in one of our companies, you know, we tell people a three to seven year time, time horizon for a harvest or an exit is typical. Uh, they can go a little longer and they can go quicker, but that's, that's typically what we tell people to plan on. And there's no liquidity, you know, between that typically, you know, there's no way if you decide halfway through it, you, you know, you don't like what they're doing or you want your money out or you need the money for some reason. That's really not a viable option today. That may change in the future because there, there's some people working on that problem. But that's part of the education process is this is a long term play. And, you know, very few companies, you know, become overnight unicorns. You know, that doesn't work that way. I mean, Microsoft was in business, I don't know what, 10 years before they went public and, you know, Uber and, you know, Airbnb just went public this week and Postmates. I mean, most of those companies are six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years old. So again, sometimes it goes quicker. We just had two exits in the last um, two months. One was a four-year-old company and the other one was four or five. So it was, it was a little, little quicker, but yeah. So, uh, you know, we really want our investors to understand that this is, you know, this is a long-term game and getting out early is not A, an option or B, oftentimes wise. And sometimes you want to double down. It's very common for our investors to have an opportunity to invest further in a company after their first investment in a later round, we call it. You know, if they like the progress the company's make, making and what they've done, you know, they should do that. And, and oftentimes we Florida funders do that. Talk to me a little bit about how you and the team think about um, investment structure? Does it matter if it's equity, safe, convertible note? Does it matter if it's an LLC, C-Corp? Does it matter, you know, some of the rough math you hear kicked around around the amount of the raise versus the valuation? Just any anything you have for how you guys think of these things? Yeah, yeah. So we do both equity and convertible notes, which a safe is is basically the same thing. We, we do look at valuation very closely. It's a very important part of what we do. And we think it's one of the advantages of investing in Florida companies and Southeast companies. We don't have the same valuations that New York City has and certainly Silicon Valley and San Francisco have. So we're typically investing in companies when they're valued around somewhere between three and $10 million. So we don't need a company to, again, be a unicorn or have an over billion dollar exit for us. Our investors get a great return. 
Right. If we invested a five million valuation and they never have to raise any more money and they exit at a hundred million, it's a twenty X return for our investors. So we do look at valuation and you know, it's always a negotiation with the founders. And one of the advantages of doing a convertible note, as you're probably aware, is it pushes the valuation question down the road so that, you know, we we're going to convert into the next round at like a 30% discount, which is typically typical to the next round. And we leave the next round, which is usually an institutional round led by a, an institutional VC, let them set the valuation. And then we get rewarded for investing early at a discount. And we, uh, Florida funders, we, we, don't, we do not do convertible notes or safes without a cap. So there's always a, a cap to that next round so that if that company, let's just say, you know, they skyrocket, they never have to raise another dime of money and, you know, they have an exit at 300 million, two, three years down the road, uh, we even negotiated a cap. So, so, you know, let's say we might have a $25 million cap. So we get rewarded for investing early should that happen. So we, we're very cognizant of that and we, we, we never do notes without caps. And then as far as the LLC or sub S, I mean, our investors are always investing in an LLC with us. So we form what we call an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, which is an LLC. So from the, the founder standpoint, the company's portfolio company standpoint, we're only one entry on the cap table and all our investors are part of the LLC and we handle all the taxes and we handle all the reporting and we have it all up on our portal and they can go up and get updates on the company and their latest financials and what the company's doing. We make that very easy for our investors. We like to say we take all the heavy lifting out of angel investing because it if you're doing it on your own and I did it on my own for 25 years, it's a lot of work. Negotiating the terms of the deal, all the legal docs, hiring the lawyers, doing the due diligence, calling customers, interviewing them, checking the backgrounds of the founders, all that stuff we do, we put up on our portal for our investors. So we make it very easy for them to evaluate the company, the founders, the technology, so they can decide whether they want to invest or not. When you reflect on maybe some of the better pitches that you've heard across those 40 companies that you've invested in, what are some of the highlights? What like what are some of the the good behaviors that you see again and again and again that that you think to yourself, man, I, I wish every pitch went this way, or or I could replay this for some other founders? Yeah, good question. And and uh, trust me, we 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 coach some of we coach our our founders before they present to our investors. The first thing, uh, keep it simple. You got you got two minutes to give to give these people your elevator pitch. They have to get it. If you if you can't explain what you're doing. To potential investors in the first minute to two of your pitch, it's not going to go well. So you got to keep it simple. You got to keep it clear and concise. Other things we see with the, with founders that we really like are, you know, your deck should be simple. You don't need a zillion slides. Don't try to communicate everything. Just try to communicate what's most important. Be engaging. And this is a big one. So typically a, a founder has about 20 to 30 minutes to present. Then you go into Q&A. And when you go into Q&A, a lot of times they do well in the pitch. And then you get to Q&A and that's when they really bomb. And one of the things we try to teach them on the Q&A is answer the question you were asked, only the question you were asked, and answer what, and make your, your answer short and brief. I guess that's redundant, but short and simple, sweet and simple, whatever. Because so many founders, when it comes to the questions, they really never answer the question. They go on and on and on. And that, that really can be the kiss of death for many investors. And, and then the, the other thing that, that we really like to see in the pitch from the founder is focus. 
don't get in front of investors and tell them, yeah, we're going to do this. And we got this great, you know, great product or, you know, SaaS software, you know, whatever. Oh, and then by the way, we're going to accumulate all this data and then we're going to, we're going to be a data company and data is really, we're going to be more of a data company at the end of the day than anything. Not what, you know, not what investors are looking for. They want to see, you know, do one thing, do it really, really well and stay focused. And many founders make that mistake. If I've heard the data thing once, I've heard it a hundred times. I've yet to see any company that started off as a software company or, you know, a security company or whatever that, that became a data company. You know, if you're going to be a data company, start off as a data company and be, to, be a data company. Otherwise, stick to what, what, you know, your core business is. I like it. That might be the hot take. The other thing that founders, one thing, <laughs> my, the one thing founders, they, they tend to put up projections that look like a hockey stick, right? So their revenues are pretty minimal now. And then over the next month, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, they go through the roof, right? And then this is the, the other one that we hear all the time is, and then they say, and these numbers are very conservative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to try to play devil's advocate to that, but but then you said, and then these numbers are very conservative. Yeah. So how how does a founder, uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll just poke at that a little bit. It, so if I'm a founder, which I am, you know, sometimes I, I feel like, well, yes, I obviously, I don't want to put the hockey stick in front of you because I know it's BS too, right? Like I, it's probably not going to happen. But the flip side of that is I also... If I showed you, I sometimes feel like if I show you my real projections, what I think we're really going to do, which is going to be, you know, we're going to be a 10 year overnight success, which means the first five years are not going to be that spectacular. You won't want to invest, right? Like, you know, I want to, I also want to show that this can be a big enough opportunity and that sometimes hard to do in a three to five year projection. So how does a founder think through balancing that? Like, I want you to think this is attractive and exciting, but I, I, you know, I also obviously don't want to mislead you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the exact numbers, especially really early stage. Now, we tend not to do pre-revenue deals. So most of the companies we're investing in, they have some traction, some customers, some revenue. You know, our, I, it, frankly, if I see that they're going to double every every six months, I mean, that's that's not a hockey stick, but that's really nice growth. And that's realistic. It's not just the numbers. And you can show the hockey stick. It's more about how you're getting there. Can you articulate and sell us, the investors, on why your growth is going to accelerate, when it's going to accelerate, and why. And is the money we're giving you, how are you putting that to use to drive that that acceleration of that growth? So it's a lot about how you position it, how you sell it for the investors. You know, we want high growth. I mean, we're not, in, you know, this is a high high growth type of investing. We're not looking for somebody, you know, I had one of our portfolios come come to me last week or uh, two weeks ago, whatever it was, and they were presenting their plan for next year. And they, they did 1.2 million in, in recurring revenue this year, and their goal is to go to 2 million next year. And my feedback, they said, they presented it, and they said, well, what do you think, Tom? And I said, well, you're 1.2, you're going to 2 million. That, that's not really very exciting for an investor. If you're 1.2 this year, my question is, how do you get to four or five next year? That's what you should be figuring out. And if you're showing me a plan of 2 million, where's that get us? I mean, that's that's not why we invest in early stage. These, this is growth investing. This is, you know, growth equity. This is not, you know, going from 1.2 to, to 2 million. Now, if you're a mature company and you're, you know, 
doing 100 million and you know, you're going to 110 or 15 million, that's okay. But that's not where we're at with these companies. And we're looking for, you know, we want to see them double every six months. We're looking for that kind of growth. When, so if you look at that portfolio of 40-ish companies that you've invested in, is that skewed one way or the other in terms of B2B versus B2C? Uh, yes, we primarily invest in B2B. We, uh, we being me and my partners, our personal backgrounds, almost all of our, all of us except one are, are former entrepreneurs. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I started my first business when I was 23. And, uh, and for your listeners, I'm 62. So um, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've basically built and sold businesses my entire life. As many of my partners have, one of one of our partners is a pure venture capital guy that's always been pretty much been in the VC business. Well, actually, he was an entrepreneur for a short period of time. But anyway, our backgrounds are primarily B two B. Now, myself and one of my partners do have a somewhat of a B two C background. It was a my last exit was an online training and education company that we sold out to private equity after thirteen years and. Probably twenty percent of our business was B two C, so I do have a little bit of background in B two C. But I would tell you, as a whole, we're focused on B two B. We we love the B two B space. It's what we know. We try to invest in what we know, and it's one. The other thing I would tell you, my part of our our formula here at Florida Funders, we don't just write checks and say, "Hey, go off, have a good time. Let's know how it goes." We really look to get involved. We typically take a board seat. That board member for us is going to be a coach and advisor, mentor to the CEO. We look at how we can how we can help that company be successful. The board member will typically be what we call an operating partner, so they'll be responsible for making introductions. Any way we can help that company, for for example, into companies for early stage uh, customers, if they need help recruiting, we'll look at okay, you need a CTO, you need you know chief revenue officer. How can we help with that? So we really look to increase the probability of our companies being successful by leveraging the experience and background of our large investor base and really plug in an investor that knows their space and that we really think can help that company be successful. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. So then, and I promise there's a, a theme to all this. So so then when you look at the B2B space, is there a preference for a sales-driven B2B organization versus more of a marketing-driven organization, right? So one where I can just show up on the website, swipe the credit card and go versus one where, you know, it's more smiling and dialing appointment setting, doing demos, getting pricing, stuff like that. You know, I, I kind of look at that a little bit differently where I kind of, I, 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 I follow what you're saying on the B2C side, it's more marketing and it can be more transactional and you can drive it through digital marketing. B2B, we're tip, these are typically, one of the biggest challenges and problems our founders have is building and scaling a sales team. And Good. This is where I wanted this conversation to go. Yeah, go for a lot it. of times they just have never done that and they get those first six, 12, you know, half dozen customers, dozen customers. 
And then they kind of don't know where to go from there. They've never hired salespeople. They've never trained them. They never understand their comp plans. We have a we have extensive experience and backgrounds and and uh, our partners and our investors in doing that. And it's one of the ways we add value. I grew up in the world of the the personal microcomputer industry and later networking. So I work with companies like Microsoft and Cisco and and uh, I was on Microsoft's advisory board back in the day. You know, one of the things I learned in technology, the best technology almost never wins. Microsoft never had the best technology. Every early product that that company ever released, and, and I was I was a VAR of theirs, they were terrible. <laughs> I mean, the early versions of Word, Excel, their networking products, but they but they were really good at sales and marketing. And they re and and by the way, Cisco was the same way. We I had a company we sold resold Cisco's VoIP product, Voice over IP, back in the late nineties. The product didn't work. They shipped it for a year. It was so buggy, it literally didn't work. But when it came to sales and marketing, you did not sell or uh, market Microsoft. You did not sell or uh, uh, market Cisco. I mean, they were that's that's where they they really and we and we try to coach our, our founders on that. Look, you you just can't build a great product and say, oh, you know, this is, the world's going to be the path to my door. Doesn't work that way. You know, you're going to have to you're going to have to sell it. You're going to have to market it, and your ability to do that is going to be paramount to your success. Is there a way? So I, I'm actually. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll get really specific. So you you know you're typically looking at deals that are post revenue. So there's, so there's some you know sales that that they've obviously done. Do you have a way to filter out? How much of this is because I feel like I, I guess maybe I'll start with the premise for this conversation. We've been head faked a couple of times where, and I personally have done this, where you know we built a product, I was very successful with the first few sales, and then you know as we started to try to scale a sales team, it you know we we just did not see the same success, and then. I started to try to sell it more and did not see the same success. So it clearly also wasn't me. And in the head fake there that I've I've seen in a couple of different companies is that, you know, you get a couple of founder friendly early sales. It looks like, you know, from the outside, it looks like traction, looks like product market fit. But what it really was, was, you know, a well-primed network, a, you know, personal relationship, whatever that is. And it turns out to not be scalable at all. And you don't, you know, that can be really hard to see until you get that first round of funding and get a team in there. Do you and the team look for that? How do you look for that? What are some ways to sniff that out? Yeah, we definitely look for that. And and one, you know, in in our due diligence process, which is very extensive and very lengthy, and and frankly, we lose some deals over it because some of the founders get frustrated and like nobody else is digging in like this. Nobody else is asking these questions. And you know, it's just part of our process. It's part of what we think is our secret sauce for our investors. So we don't we don't we don't bend on it. But the two things we look most at are the founders. We look at them. We look at their backgrounds. We look at you know, we're looking for certain things in founders. We're looking for, we're, we're looking for perseverance. We're looking for somebody who's not going to quit. This is going to, you, you know, Mike, building businesses is really, really hard. The punches in the face yep. are coming. If you're not tough, if you're not persistent, if you're not somebody that can get knocked down and pick yourself back up and then, you, you know, so we're looking for that with our founders. We're looking for integrity. We're giving these people million dollar checks, sometimes more. Can we trust them? Do we know that they're going to invest and spend this money like it's their own? You know, these are some of the things we're looking for in those founders. We'd like to see a team of two rather than an individual, though we do both. And we want to see somebody's got to be able to sell this. Can somebody articulate the vision, therefore be able to sell it to, for recruiting purposes, to build a team? Because 
It's all about your team, right? You got to build a great team. And can they sell the, can they, can they sell customers on this? And then ideally they're, you know, it's the jobs and Wozniak thing. You know, you got the great sales marketing guy and the great, great tech guy. If they're missing one of those, we're a little suspect there. But the second thing we do in our due diligence process and spend the most time on is interviewing the early customers. And we're looking for exactly what you're saying. We're really drilling. And I, I learned this from years of running a private equity backed company where we acquired a lot of companies. You know, those were extensive interviews with those customers. And by the way, we want to pick the customers we talk to, not the founders who they tell us to talk to. And we do extensive interviews. Why did you pro- buy this product? What other products did you look at? If we yank this product out of here tomorrow, how does your life change? And we want to hear they love it. We want to hear they're telling friends about it. We want to hear that they it's not something that's nice to have. They they couldn't live without it now, and they don't know what they did with before it was there. So we're looking for that in in that product market fit, as you said. And you know, we we want to know how'd you find out about the company? How did you find the product? And we don't want to hear well, you know. The CEO is one of the investors, and he told me to take a look at this. Mm, you know, that's not what we're really looking for. You know, we want to hear. Well, we we had this problem. It was a big problem. Well, we've been searching for a long time for a solution, and you know these these guys came across or these gals came across our radar, and you know stuff like that. So yeah, we're really looking at those early customers, and we want to make sure that this is they're not just early adopters that buy everything and try it, and if it works, well, you know, because. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't scale as, as, as you pointed out. How often does the, so you said you, you sometimes play a, a you know, or you're ideally in a perfect world, you'd love to be more active after you're writing the check, right? It's not just money, but you guys might be able to lean into some of your prior experiences and help a founding team out. How often does the team take you up on that? And I'm sure it's, you know, quite often when you initially write that check, but once the honeymoon period is over, right? It's a it's a year later, it's two years later. How often are they reaching back out to you and saying, hey, we've hit this problem. Have you guys seen this before? How can you help? Yeah, I would tell you that we have two types of investments here. We have passive and active, or in the active ones, we're usually the lead investor. So, and, the, and like 75% of our, our investments were the lead investor and we're active. Wow. 25% of them, we're just writing a check. We're not the lead investor. We're investing alongside other people we probably trust and believe in. We don't have a board seat and we're writing a check and you know we're going to help the company any way we can if they need introductions into uh, public supermarket. We have contacts at Publix and umpteen other companies. I'm just around Publix out and, and you know, we'll help them that way. But it's going to be really minor where when we lead a deal and we're the lead investor, we're going to take a board seat. We're going to be in contact with that company for years and, and years, really till we exit. And, you know, we're going to get very involved. And the first thing we do as soon as we make the investment, we do a deep dive where we bring the founders into a room with a bunch of us and we'd spend one whole day going through every aspect of their business. What's their, what's their marketing plan? What's their sales plan? What's their product roadmap? What are their financial reporting structure look like? What's the team look like? Where are the gaps? And we really kick off the relationship with that deep dive. And from then on, we're really trying to help that founder be successful any way we can. And we have a, a woman on our team, uh, Candice, who's our director of founder success, and that's her, her sole job is to work with these founders. And by the way, introduce them to each other, so you know, many of our founders of our portfolio companies know each other and we, there's ways they can work each other, work with each other, help each other out. You know, we try to try to promote and facilitate that as well. Awesome. All right. Getting close to time before we wrap up other kind of 
tips, do's, don'ts for founders as they kind of either think of their initial pitch or go through the diligence process? Other things you want to point out that are kind of common gotchas that teams get hung up on? Yeah, you know, a couple of things I would tell you on we want to see from founders. Uh, we want to see them have skin in the game. We want to see either they've written a check or they've worked for months, if not years, at well below market. If somebody comes in and is like they're paying them, you know, they, they give them the budget, they're going to pay themselves $200,000 a year and they don't have any of their own money in this. We, you know, we're not that interested, you know. So that's that's one of the things that we see. Again, focus, you know, a lot of times they have trouble really articulating the message and exactly what they do. They've got to get to that really quick. And then the other thing too is we want to see people that, you know, are are are, are passionate about what they're doing. We're not into, you know, the balanced lifestyle that many millennials want to live today. Frankly, we don't care. You know, <laughs> I, you know, we ask the question, what do you do on the weekends? We don't want to hear golf, sale, hike. We want to hear work. I like to work on weekends. I spend most of my weekends <laughs> working and, you know, I haven't taken a vacation in two years. We want people. You, you, you ever, did you ever hear like Elon Musk, like how often Musk took vacation when he was building PayPal and, the, you know, his companies? Like I never went on vacation. He worked like I work like a dog. I mean, building companies like we have already discussed is not only hard work; it's a lot of work, and the odds are against you, and you have lots of competition. If you, and you know, my brother, uh, who's a little older than me, and he he's he sold his company to um, a publicly traded company down the street here called Roper Technologies, one of the largest software companies in America. He sold for one point six billion dollars about two years ago. And I watched my brother build this company over 13, 14 years, whatever it was. And, and, and he always said, he said, you know, Tom, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And, you know, frankly, I came from outside this industry, but no one will outwork me. And he was the first guy in the office and the last guy to leave. And he, you know, spent a million, probably flew a million miles a year, offices in London and Japan and all over the place. And, you know, that's what we want to see. We want to see that kind of dedication from a founder. and. You know, that's, that's what it takes. It, you know, it's just, you know, it takes passion. It takes hard work. It takes tenacity. It takes perseverance. And I think there are a lot of young people today that just, you know, they want to be the next Elon Musk or they want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg because it's very glamorous and, you know, they, they see these people, but they just don't have a clue as to how hard these, these people work. And, you know, and you need to get lucky too or have some amount of luck. All right. You've given me a new thread to pull on. So I'm going to invoke executive privilege and force you to stay with me for another five to 10 minutes. No worries. So both you and your brother were entrepreneurs. You both have exits, clearly strong work ethic. Uh, any other siblings in there? Or just the two of you? Uh, we have two sisters. We have, uh, he, we're, we're Irish twins. He's 13 months older than me or almost Irish twins. And then right on. we have an older sister, uh, three years older and a younger sister, three years younger than me. Are they entrepreneurs too? No, uh, our, my older sister worked for me for most of her career. So she's been with me with uh, a bunch of my companies over the years. And my younger sister um, has been mostly a stay-at-home mom. for. So I have two young boys, and I'm constantly you know, dwelling on how I'm screwing them up as a dad. <laughs> I, I'm super interested. What do you think you know, led to you and your brother going down that path? Because I, I would say to have two of those in one family seems rare. Uh, so how, like what, think back to your childhood and what, what happened there? Well, uh, my father, neither of my parents graduated from high school and my father was a union guy and uh, he climbed uh, utility poles. He was a lineman, if you know what that is. 
I do. And, um, you know, we saw him work for the same company for 42 years. And, you know, and, and I think at a very early age, I was an entrepreneur probably 20 years before my brother. My brother worked for Arthur Anderson for over a decade, and, and he, he became an entrepreneur about midway through his career. But for me, it was very apparent that I didn't want to spend 42 years of my life working at the same company to retire and get a letter opener. And that, um, you know, that I, I, I guess I was also always more adventuresome and more of a risk taker. And so our parents were not that way at all. I remember when I was 23 and I left a job at my only real job, my father said I worked at Alcoa on the you know, Fortune 500 company. My, yeah. my father thought I was out of my mind. He's like, what are you doing? You got this great job. They're paying you for your, if you want to get an MBA, they're, you know, you know, you're traveling and they're paying for everything. And, you know, why would you leave them to start a company? He just, back then, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't as popular as it is today. And, and, uh, but anyway, so I, I think what we did learn from my parents was, was, uh, hard work. They were very hardworking people. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in a ways they were mentors in that, Hey, we see what, if you work hard and, and work for somebody else where that gets you. And I guess early on we figured, you know, or I, I figured out that, Hey, I want to work hard, but I don't want to do it for, for a, a corporation. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. All right, Tom, if folks want to get in touch with you or learn more about Florida Funders, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, floridafunders.com is our website. I'm Tom at floridafunders.com. I love to hear from your listeners. If anybody's interested in becoming an angel investor and, you know, we we have deals up on our site all the time that they can look at and we constantly have educational things, webinars and seminars, and we're really focused on uh, converting Florida, as we like to say, from sunshine state to startup state. Uh, we want we want this to become this state to become as known for technology and innovation as we are today for the mouse and for strawberries and for tourism. So we'd love to have them along and join us on our journey. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing it. This has been great. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.